Our scripture reading this morning uh, on the topic of lust is 2 Samuel 11, the entire chapter. You can find that in your pew Bibles, the blue pew Bibles on page 486, as it says on the screen. Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the floor of the palace, or on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go down to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it, he wrote, or sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. 
The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. When the archers shot arrows, or then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The Lord, the sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who are here for the first time or haven't been here in a while, throughout this summer we've been talking about the seven deadly sins. And today is the last of that series as we talk about the deadly sin of lust. I want to say a few things as we begin today. One, just the word sex. Oftentimes in the church, we avoid saying that word. And so I simply want to say that word, sex. It's not actually a dirty word as the church often has portrayed it. It is part of God's good creation and gift to us. But it is part of his creation in a way that is very powerful. And because of that, as we begin today, I, I want to say a few things to, to recognize the scope of our conversation and, and some of the implications for us. Many of us actually carry a deep shame because of what we have done and or what has been done to us sexually. And I don't want to enter into this conversation today lightly and, and ignore that or blow over it, but to recognize at the outset that that for some of us, this is difficult. Simply talking about sexuality in any context can trigger some powerful and some painful emotions. I'll, we'll set some parameters for where we're going today, but, but at the outset, I want to mention a resource that our church has available to us. The Shalane Mental Health Network is a network of Christian counselors in this area who walk alongside people, and for those who who may have a, a uh, experience with broken sexuality, whether their own or someone else's that has been forced upon them, I strongly encourage you to make use of this resource. If you're a member of this church or a regular attender here, you can actually access up to f six free counseling sessions each year uh, to, to work on whatever. It doesn't have to be about sexuality, but, but that resource is available. At the end of this service, we'll put that information back up about Shalane uh, so that you can take that down if you would like and, and follow up. A couple things about this morning. Our purpose here this morning really is not a, a therapy session. We're not here to make people feel vulnerable or dig into those painful places or feel us, have us feeling exposed or even to condemn us. Oftentimes, the church, its conversation about sexuality comes with a wagging finger. And that's not our place this morning. Our place this morning is much more focused on the grace of Christ that comes to us in the midst of our sin. So our purpose here today is to bring us into the presence of our loving God, through whom we can receive and experience healing, 
forgiveness and restoration in Jesus Christ. So this morning's message, we'll enter the brokenness of David, we'll acknowledge our brokenness, but the direction where we're going is towards God's grace and God's healing. Created very good. God created us in such a way that our body, our emotions, our social relationships, our spirituality, everything about us is actually integrated. One of the ways that we experience this in, in that integration is, is with grief. A couple summers ago, I, I went through a period of grieving the fact that my dad had died several years beforehand. And, and the unpacking of that grief, my body ended up not remembering what was day or what was night. I would go to bed at midnight and I'd wake up fully awake an hour later. And it took working through that grief and working through the grieving I was doing about my dad's death to get to a place where my body could actually sleep again and sleep at the normal time of day. We are fearfully and wonderfully made so that our bodies what happens in our bodies is related to what happens in our emotions, in our well-being, our intellect. We're all interwoven. We are integrated people. We are also sexual creatures. From the very beginning, we, we hear about that sexuality already in Genesis chapter 2 as, as God creates male and female and then he gives them to each other and, and says they are to become one flesh together. That sexuality is framed as part of God's very good creation, God's gift to us. And, and the sexuality is not just a little piece of us, but it's part of the holistic way that God has made us. There's something that, that part of our culture, and, and we need to say this as part of the created goodness of, of our sexuality, part of our culture misunderstands this. It views sexuality almost exclusively as, as orgasm or as, as that intense moment of intercourse. It, it focuses just on the pleasure side of it. But our sexuality, because we are sexual beings, all of us carries our sexuality with us. And, and it's expressed and received with God's good gifts of love. We find that the, the vice of lust is actually a distortion of God's gift of love. Uh, affection friendship, and most fully within marriage. So to some extent, our sexuality is always with us as a good expression, a good gift from God, and it's allowed to be and designed to be expressed more potently, more powerfully, the further we walk into covenant community so that when we get to that exclusive marriage relationship, that is the place where our sexuality is given the freedom to flourish and thrive but it doesn't mean that we quit being sexual at other times. Our sexuality is always with us as a good gift from God. And it impacts friendship. It impacts affection. It impacts every relationship we're in. When, we, when rightly expressed, when received as this good gift from God, that posture of receiving a gift from God, when sexuality is received as a good gift from God, our sexuality serves to expand our experience of being whole and being holy. 
and it's in relationship not only with each other, but also with God. One of the places scripture really focuses on this is in the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And, and there's been a debate uh, all the way back in history. There is this huge debate. Is, is this book really talking about our relationship with God or is it talking about the love between a husband and wife? And it goes back and forth, back and forth. Paul, later on in the New Testament, picks up on that same idea and he starts talking about the relationship between husband and wife and he says, he, he slips into, as he's doing that, this conversation about the relationship between Christ and the church. And he's saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husband as, as the church submits to Christ. And, and then he says, and I'm talking about Christ and the church and I'm talking about husbands and wives. So there is something of the sexual relationship, the gift that God has given us, that actually when done wholly and in a holistic way with husband and wife is meant to bring out the, the relationship with God, to deepen our awareness and our experience with who God is, with how God loves us, and with the way we have been created to love one another. In some sense, our sexuality, when rightly ordered, allows us to obey those two commandments that Christ gave, to love God and to love our neighbor with all that we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. The problem is when lust comes in. Lust tears all that apart. It is a potent sin. Lust takes God's good gift of love and, and distorts it so that love is, it becomes just talking about our sexual experience or our sexual pleasure. This affects everything. It, if we think about it for a moment, lust ends up corrupting every aspect of how we're called to love God. Our hearts. James chapter 1 has a whole piece on it that talks about temptation. And it says, don't say God's tempting you. For God doesn't tempt anyone. But each of us is, is dragged away when we're enticed by our own evil desires. And it, it, uses, it uses the language then right after that of conceiving and birthing sin and death. This relationship to temptation, this, this area of our heart, this sense of desiring, when lust sets in, our desires are so corrupted that we can no longer see God in our heart relationship towards God becomes one of, of God, you're, you're doing this to me. Why are you tempting me like this? And we want to blame God for our own desires. And James says, no, that's your heart going astray. And as it goes astray, it wants more sin and more sin. And as that sin grows in you, you will die. Sounds an awful lot like that first warning to Adam and Eve. If you take this fruit, which seems pleasurable to you, and you desire, and you take it for yourself, you will die. Lust corrupts our desires, our heart relationship with God. Even more than that, it, it starts to transform our relationships with others. When lust sets in, it begins to shape the way we view other people. And it's not simply... It's not simply about sexual pleasure at that point, but, but it starts corrupting all of our relationships into a utilitarian relationship. I'll break that big word down a moment. 
Utilitarian means to use, to make use of. And so as you start working through people who are really caught in lust and, and for example, really caught up in pornography, one of the things that happens to them is that they start viewing other people as people who can give them pleasure or not give them pleasure. Can you help me out with what I need right now, which is to feel good? And if not, I want nothing to do with you. And there becomes a distancing and a sorting of the people around us based on whether or not we can use them, whether or not they will benefit us. There's a distortion that happens. Our minds, the way we perceive the world around us, starts looking at it from a very self-centered perspective. What good is this person to me? What good can I get out of them? What benefit can I get out of them? If you remember, those of you who have been here, as we've talked about each of the other deadly sins, that's one of the core reasons that these are deadly sins. Because it, they all affect the way we view other people. And we start to use them rather than to serve them and love them. It moves on. Our souls get bound up. There's actually shame and guilt that gets tied into it. And and as, as we get wrapped up in lust, and the more deeply we get wrapped up in lust, the more difficult it is even to show up at church. I've talked with people who have said, I'm so tied up in this, I don't want to go. Because I know what God's going to say to me. It becomes an awareness of, of the heaviness of it. And I've talked with others who on the other side of it where, where they are ones who have been victimized by other people's lust. Where the dirtiness and the shame of all of that sits upon them in such a way that they're like, can I ever get clean before God? Is there room for me? Do you know what's happened to me? So we waver between this, do you know what I've done? And do you know what's happened to me? And we fear coming before God. Our souls who desperately need God start building up a callus against God with shame and with guilt in our bodies. There's been some studies done in the last few years as the internet has made pornography much more accessible and an earlier age at which people are starting to view pornography. So much so that there are 20-year-olds who are talking about erectile dysfunction and going to see their doctors. And it taking several years of therapy and of being away from pornography in order to be able to start functioning physically as they were created to. And it's not just with guys. There's sexual dysfunction with women and 20%, the estimate is right now, of pornography users are women. It's transforming a whole generation at the moment so that their sexual functioning, the physical sexual functioning, no longer works the way it was designed to. One of the biggest issues facing college and university campuses today is the issue of, of disordered sexuality, especially as, an, as a consequence of, of the wide pornography use. Our hearts, our minds, our souls, even our bodies are being distorted and corrupted by lust. Lust, in the end, 
makes it impossible for us to fulfill those two greatest commands. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. With that as background, I want us to look briefly at at the story Joel read for us from 2 Samuel 11. Most of us have heard it at some point or another, the story of David and Bathsheba. David doesn't go out to war. He stays home, and as he's walking on the rooftop, he goes, oh, look at her. And he sends someone to find her and then sends someone to bring her back to him. We know how the story unfolds. But I want us to pay attention to this morning to to some of the pieces of this story and how, how the whole chapter really is about David's lust and the consequences or repercussions that come out of it. There's kind of a a first set here. One of the things we've talked about here uh, a number of times along the way is that, that sins of omission often create the context for sins that we commit. So instead of doing what we should be doing, we stop. We, we refuse to do what we ought to do, and then that creates a vacuum into which we start to do things that we should not do. David, as king, has a sin of omission here. You notice the text actually points it out and makes a, a bit of a point at the start of it. David, it was the time where kings led their people out into war. It was the time of year to go out, and David this time sent Joab, his commander, with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. David, I'm going to take it easy this year, guys. I'm going to sit down and enjoy myself. I've worked hard the last few years. I deserve a break. You know how many battles I've been after all? I killed Goliath. What have you guys done? Why don't you go out this year? You got it. Sits back. He starts already in that sin of omission, of not going out, of not leading the people to focus on his own pleasure, his own sense of what he wants, what he'd rather not do. He shifted his posture. And in that posture, he's created a vacuum. And in that vacuum, he starts exhibiting a a voyeuristic behavior. I'm going to stand on the rooftop where I can see everybody. And I'm going to go take a look. And he starts to look at Bathsheba. And he starts to imagine Bathsheba and desire her. And then he, he does something that shows up all over the place in broken sexuality. He abuses his power. As king, he could say to anybody in the kingdom, I want that person here now, and someone would go get him. And he does that with Bathsheba. Knowing who she was, knowing that she was the wife of someone else, knowing that she was Uriah's wife. Now, most of us may not recognize Uriah's name, but Uriah's name actually comes up quite a few times in David's story. He's one of the 30 one of the elite men who has been part of what is called here in this text, the king's men. He has fought many battles with David. He has been a loyal soldier for David. He was there in the caves. He was there with the Philistines. He's been there. He has been one of these mighty warriors all along. David knew him. David had been on many campaigns with him. They, you could say, were friends. 
Even when eh, Uriah's gone, she's beautiful. I want her. See how it's corrupted already, the lust, even before he has sex with her. It's already corrupting his relationships with his friends. It's already distorting his posture, not only with God, but with the people around him. And then he has sex outside of God's boundaries with someone else's wife. During the time of purification, when you, you read the text, the newer NIV translation has updated it and said, as she was in the time of purification. A place where you were not supposed to have sex. A time where there was not supposed to be those relations, even between husband and wife. David uses his power to take advantage of Bathsheba, to take from her for his own good. A child is conceived in the context of adultery, a repercussion David didn't even think about on the beginning. Uh, along with that, he then starts to go, how am I going to cover this up? And he betrays his, his friendship with Uriah. He, he sets Uriah up and has Uriah killed, and, and he does it in such a subtle way. Send him where the fiercest fighting is. Uriah could handle himself. He likely was one who entered those spaces and, and went into those fiercest fighting spaces. That's what it meant to be part of that 30 of the king's men. You went where it was fiercest because you could handle it. Set him up there, Joab, and have him killed. And when you start to see this story, you begin to understand that David's lust has not only caused him to be compromised before God and with other people, He's now brought in Joab into it to commit murder. And he's brought in other servants to cover up the murder and to cover up the adultery and to cover up the pregnancy, to do everything he can to make it look like he's okay, to keep that public appearance that I've got everything together. Nothing's wrong here, nothing to look at. And he's brought a whole community down with him. Lust is never innocent. Lust never leaves people unharmed. Someone and a whole community of people are always affected by it. Bathsheba ends up suffering, mourning the death of her husband. Later on, as the story unfolds, you hear that their child dies, mourning the loss of a child, being brought out of her home and into a, a new palace by force. In the end, the last sentence is the judgment sentence. God is disappointed with David. That's where most of us end up, isn't it? That space when we talk about sexuality of feeling disappointed with God or disappointed, disappointing to God. We feel all the distortions too. You know, people keep saying to me, we live in an over-sexualized culture and, and there's all sorts of condemnation and, and yes, there is a lot of sex all over the place. Internet, TV, ads, go into the mall, it's all over. But I would argue it's actually not over-sexualized. It, it actually under-sexualizes things. It, it takes sexuality that God gave as a good gift and distorts it by isolating just one aspect of it just the physical appearance and the pleasure of it. 
and it says this is what sex is. And so it distorts it as such a small piece. But we live in that context where we're constantly bombarded by a distorted image of sex. We feel the distortions for those of us who have been trapped inside compulsive and addictive behaviors around sexuality. We feel it. We feel the weight of it. We feel the weight of not being able to get past these sins. We don't know what to do and and we feel mastered by those sins. One of the common comments of people who are coming out of uh, a distorted or broken sexuality and they're starting to experience some healing, one of the common comments is, every bit of my confidence was destroyed because I couldn't get out from under this. I didn't have confidence in my, to speak with my spouse or with my friends. I, I lost the confidence to take leadership even though I wanted to because I was afraid somebody would find out about this sin and expose me and I'd lose everything. I became fearful. How many of us have had our capacity to trust others broken through our broken sexuality? How many of us have taken on dishonesty as a way of life, trying to hide the ways that we are are participating in a broken sexuality? How many of us have felt the pain of being discarded? We feel these distortions. We lose somewhere along the way as we have experienced more and more broken sexuality, whether it's others or our own. We lose the ability to imagine a healthy affection, uh, to imagine intimacy where we can truly be vulnerable and not afraid of what the other person is going to judge us for. The ability to enter into friendships. Our our culture, there was a movie several years back, I think it may have even been in the the late 80s or early 90s, that, that said men and women can never have a friendship with each other because it's always about sex. Our culture teaches us again and again that the only relationship you can have with the opposite sex is one that's sexual. We don't understand friendship as a God-given gift anymore. And that line, that line keeps coming back. Pastoral care conversations, you talk to counselors and therapists, this line keeps coming back. If people really knew me, It's around other things too, gluttony, alcoholism, drug addictions, those things. Most often, it shows up around broken sexuality. If people really knew me, they would throw me out. They wouldn't listen to me. They wouldn't be my friend. And we carry such a deep shame with us that it immobilizes us. And this one, I can't be forgiven. Not even by God. I can't get clean because of what's been done to me. God can't even clean me. I will never be good enough for God. I'm not asking for shows of hands this morning. But this is the experiences that happen so often in our culture and even in the church. You know, there is grace in this text and and in the story as it continues to unfold beyond it. There's actually grace there that that gives us some hope. David is not smited by God, smote by God, those of you who are grammar experts. um, Smitten. 
God doesn't send a lightning bolt and destroy them. God doesn't wipe them out. It doesn't prove to be the sin that's unforgivable. It actually, David experiences a great deal of forgiveness and restoration from God in the stories, that, the chapters that follow, and to the point that he ends up leading the army out. He ends up going back into the role God had given him. He's restored. But he has to experience discipline and grace along the way that are mixed together. God calling him out, having Nathan come and, and, and confront him. But when we read the bigger story, we see even more of the grace. Solomon, the son who lives uh, from David and Bathsheba, ends up becoming God's chosen one to lead the people of Israel after David. He's given the kingdom and, and is called to lead God's people. And God blesses Solomon in many ways. And Solomon makes his own mistakes, but, but God blesses him. God's restoring David's family and saying, your sin was not the end of the story. Your sexual violence and, and your murder were not the end of the story. There is more to what I am doing. This sin does not keep you from me. And in the end, we end up seeing not just David, but Bathsheba and Solomon wrapped into the story of Jesus' own lineage. Jesus owning this story as his own, saying, this is my family. Not hiding them as black sheep and saying, yeah, you really don't want to talk about David. Let's not bring him up. But saying, this is my family. These are the people that I come from. This is my story. There is an incredible amount of grace and restoration given to God's people by paying attention to the fullness of this story. It's not enough. I want us to hear some of God's grace to us, even in the context of sexual sin, whether it's what we've done or what's been done to us. God repeats this refrain all through the Old Testament. It pops up in the New. It's about God's character. And as much as lust distorts our view of God so that we're fearful of him, we need to hear again and again and again, the Lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in love. That abounding in love is hesed, God's covenantal faithfulness. I have pledged myself to you, and even though you are unfaithful, I will remain faithful to you. God ends up using a prophet named Hosea and his wife, who is a prostitute, to demonstrate how God's faithful love continues to be shown even when we are unfaithful to him. God sent Jesus to untangle us from all of our sins. It's the language used in, in Hebrews 12. After talking about this whole kind of hall of fame of people who have been faithful, the, the, the writer of Hebrews calls us to pay attention to how God leads us into a space. Jesus leads us to a space where we are untangled from our sins so that we can run the race with confidence doesn't say, I untangle you from every sin except for your sexual sins. God untangles us. God removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. God has saved us by grace and reconciled us, not by our own works. And that reconciliation is with God, but it leads to a reconciliation with others if you read all of Ephesians chapter 2. Even sexual sins can be overcome and reconciled 
And Jesus is interceding for us even now. I find this one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. We know by experience that we come here and we confess our sins and we turn around sometimes that very afternoon, Sunday afternoon, and we sin again. Lord, help me. And again and again, we hear that God is with us and we hear this verse, that even now, Jesus is seated at right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's, he's cheering for us. He's calling out for God's mercy for us. God, help them. Father, help them. Don't leave them on their own. And we get this great promise in Revelation 21 and 22 that God is at work making all things new, including us, so that we will be whole and holy in God's presence and with each other. Think about that phrase for a moment. Whole and holy. When it comes to sexual sin, that's what we long for. A sense of wholeness. To have that, that relationship with God restored where we experience his forgiveness in the depth of our being, in our physical bodies that we can experience God's healing, that we can feel God's love for us. And to be holy, to live in such a way that we can look each other eye to eye without shame, without fear, without condemnation. What's remarkable to me is that it's not only this kind of abstract God forgives us. It's not this big out there, God's with us. If we pay attention to Jesus, we see a healthy sexuality and he was single. We in the church usually say, well, sexuality, it means absolutely no expression of sexuality before you're married and after you're married, everything's free game. And that's not true. In fact, a lot of us get hurt both before marriage and after marriage because of that. Jesus embodies this healthy love. Remember, lust is a distortion not just of sex, but of love. Jesus sits and talks with a Samaritan woman at the well. That culture said that, that men and women who are not married to each other or not siblings had no, no place to talk to each other in public. And Jesus goes to this woman who's been married five times and is now living with a man who is not her husband and he sits down and he has a conversation where he honors her. He dignifies her with conversation and relationship that is whole and holy. And the woman who's caught in adultery, she's dragged into the temple courts and, and Jesus is supposed to condemn her to death. That's what the law called for. That's what the Pharisees wanted. And Jesus calmly writes in the sand till they all drop their stones and walks away and he looks at her. Is no one here left to condemn you? I don't condemn you. Go. Enter a new life. Don't be caught up in this sin anymore. Do you hear him modeling a healthy sexuality even in the way he interacts with people of the opposite gender? He touches and receives, his, receives touch from people in healthy and restorative ways. Yes, some of these were miracles. He healed a leper by touching him. He, he healed other people with touching them. But he also allowed people to touch him 
one of the most provocative and scandalous was, was as he's, he's reclining at a table to eat at a Pharisee's house. And we talked about the, the reclining before, right? That, that there would be a, a place in the middle, a short table, and people would lay down on the ground. And, and someone comes up behind Jesus and, and, and lets down her hair, something she would have, have for sure been driven out of, out of that space for doing. You women did not let down their hair in public. They were supposed to keep it covered. And she lets down her hair. And she begins to weep. And she touches his feet. And the people who could touch your feet were a servant who was cleaning it after you walked through the muck and the mire in the streets and your spouse. And here this strange woman weeps and touches his feet and he receives the gift of touch. He receives her tears Mary Magdalene, Mary who had seven demons cast out of her, Mary who, who's the subject of so much controversy, he goes and finds her after his resurrection. And she clings to his feet and he looks at her and says, Mary, you hear the affection in his voice as he says her name? He knew her well enough to speak to her in an affectionate way, not a sexualized way an affectionate way to call her to wholeness and holiness. He eats with tax collectors and sinners who were known for their sexual depravity and brokenness and condemned for it all the time. He says he came to seek and save those who were lost and ultimately what we will celebrate in a few moments. Instead of using other people's bodies to gratify his own desire, he uses his own body. His own body to serve others. Instead of seeking pleasure, he willingly embraced suffering. Instead of saying, my body is just so I can feel good, come pleasure me, he turned around and he took beatings and he took nails and he took a crown of thorns and he took the suffering of a broken relationship with God and that distance from God and being separated from God that we so often feel in our broken sexuality. And he said, it is finished. My body given for your good. After the resurrection, he takes a walk with Peter. And he dares, in a culture that didn't want affection between men at all, dares to say, Peter, do you love me? Not once, not twice, three times. And he restores Peter with a conversation about love between men. Do you love me? Go, feed my sheep. I restore you. Do you love me? Go, feed my sheep. I'm restoring you, Peter making him whole and holy. Jesus embodies that love and longs to do the same thing for us this morning. I love this verse because it's so much of our experience, isn't it? Some of us can't lift up our hands to receive grace from God because they feel so full of our brokenness and our pain. We feel so weighed down, we don't know how to lift our hands up. We don't know how to lift our eyes up to look at Christ. 
We don't know how to receive grace from God because we feel so beat up and broken, and especially in this day and age around sexuality. And we hear these gentle, affectionate, loving words from Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Let me walk with you. Let me bring you to that place where you will be whole and holy again. We're going to enter into from this, not singing a song like we normally do. We'll sing a little bit more. But as we conclude the message, we're going to enter into a time of confession. And historically, that time of confession is two things. It is one, us saying, Lord, here's my own brokenness. But it is also a lament to say, Lord, here's the broken world we live in, and it hurts. It's heavy. Lift us out of this. So we'll sing together, create in me a clean heart. And at the end of it, we'll sing together, when peace like a river, which has that beautiful space, my sin, my sin, not in part, but the whole. Invite us now to pray. We come to you, Lord, not because we've got it figured out and not because we've made ourselves clean, but we come to you just because you call us. You invite us to come as we are, broken and beat up. And so we come before you. We ask for your gentle touch, your healing this morning, your cleansing, your making us whole and holy because we can't do it ourselves. Please, Lord, hear this prayer we offer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear this grace of God calling us into confession. From Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. But as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and, and, to water the, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I have sent it. God's invitation is to us to come before him and lay our burdens down, to repent of our sins and receive his forgiveness. In that attitude and in that invitation, I invite us to sing together, creating me a clean heart. <laughs>